It is so good to be back in this pulpit again and to be with our spiritual family. Thank you for uh, giving us a little bit of time away and uh, spend a little time with Living Hope Bible Church, and I'll tell you about them a little bit in just a moment. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful every Sunday we get to come and be with your people here, our nuclear family, spiritually speaking. We praise you for our extended family all over the world, but this is the part of your body that we're responsible for, and so we praise you. You've been so kind to us as a church. You've been so kind to us as individuals in this church, and Lord, you've added to our number uh, more than we could have imagined over the last 10 years. We praise you for the church plant in Mansfield, praise you for the coming one. Lord, we try not to be presumptuous about that, but we believe that you're calling us to plant that church uh, northwest of town, and Lord, we ask your blessing on those plans. But for now, Father, I pray before any of that happens, that over these next several weeks, you would fill us with a love for your church and pray, Father, that you would change our hearts in that regard in any way that is needed to be changed in us. And these things we know would bring you glory, and so we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 1 this morning. If, let me just begin with a question. If, if I were to ask you, what do you believe is the most precious thing to the heart of God. What is the most precious thing to the heart of God? I mean outside of the three persons of the Trinity, right? And some might say, well, the Bible is clearly God's most precious possession after all. It is his inspired written word to mankind and none of us would be able to know hardly anything and certainly not savingly anything about God. And so surely the Bible the revelation of God himself in a book is, must be God's most precious possession. Others might say the most precious thing to the heart of God is humanity. Because every human being is created in the image of God, therefore, he holds a unique standing as the crowning achievement of all of God's creative work. Surely it's humanity. And others will say, God loves, the thing that God loves most is heaven. Surely it's heaven. After all, that's the holy place in which he dwells, in a sense. It is the place where the angels of God redound his praises day and night without interruption. Moreover, it is where the three members of the Trinity enjoy eternal and unspoiled fellowship. Surely if there is anything that God loves, it's heaven, and we look forward to heaven. We can't wait to get to heaven. And I would just say to all of these, of course, God loves his word more than the writings of men. And of course, he esteems humanity more highly than he does any other part of creation. And, and all of this is true. He loves heaven as the celestial residence of everything holy and eternal. But as marvelous as these things may be, there is still one object of his affections that stand higher than the Bible, higher than humanity, higher than heaven, higher than anything else in creation. In fact, listen to me, so precious is this one thing that God himself was willing to step off of his throne and lay down his life in order to purchase it. What is this one thing, I mean, what could possibly be so enormously valuable to God? In a word, his church. There is nothing the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit love more outside the very Godhead himself than the church of Jesus Christ. She is the crown jewel of the cosmos, specially cut to refract the majestic light of the glory of Jesus. Yes, the heavens declare the glory of God, 
but not as intelligently as the church. Yes, the mountains display the glory of God, but not as majestically as the church. Yes, the angels proclaim the glory of God, but not as gratefully as the church. And every human life images forth the glory of God, but not as devotedly as the church. Amid all the magnificent glories of creation, the church stands alone as the most precious thing to the heart of God. And when I say the church, I don't mean the structures. That's not the church. I'm not talking about the trellis. We're talking about the vine. We're talking about the people. We're talking about those whom God has redeemed by his precious blood. Ironically, however, it seems to me that while the church is the most precious thing to the heart of God, it is often less than precious to many of his people. In our day, it seems the church is increasingly undervalued by many who profess to be its members. Many treat the church as nothing more than a religious weekend entitlement or perhaps a religious duty. In our day, few people hold the church in the high esteem that she deserves. It's more of an afterthought. It's, a, it's more like, well, if we've got nothing better to do, nothing more important. Perhaps this is owing, I confess, to the many pastors, and, and I was one of them, when I came to Calvary Bible Church, I was the church growth guy. That's what I loved. That's what I studied. That's what I, and it was foolishness. Praise the Lord for Pastor Jim who rescued me from that fire. <laughs> but I suspect it's owing in part to the many pastors who have shifted their focus to a model of ministry designed to appeal to the lost, the irreligious, and the unchurched. And such ministers use their preaching time to address felt needs, offering therapy to the wounded, entertainment to the uninterested, and positive affirmation who, for those who lack confidence. It robs the church of her glory because it robs Christ of his glory. You see, the glory of the church is not determined by her weekly attendance, the appeal of her music, the number of her programs, Rather, the glory of the church is manifest in the exaltation of the Christ revealed in Scripture and in the joyful obedience of his grateful and adoring people as they serve him and worship him together. In America, we've been taught that the church exists for the individual's personal well-being. We come to church and we think, well, I hope I can get something good out of it today. Maybe we'll get something that you like. Maybe you'll get something you don't like. But maybe if you get more of what you do like, you'll come back and endure the things you don't like. And if there's too many things you don't like, then you'll just leave. And we tell people to accept Jesus as your personal Savior. We, we tell them God loves you, you, and has a wonderful plan for your life. The message of the church is increasingly a message about people coming to God for personal fulfillment. And while it's certainly true that God loves every believer intimately and personally, the glory of the church is the glory of the eternal Christ lived out among his people collectively. It's not just you and Jesus. It's not just you and your Bible. Yes, you can sing praise songs all by yourself, and they'll probably honor the Lord. But you know what? Your life is not honoring to the Lord if you are not a vital part of his church. I'm just going to tell you before I get too deep into the series on the church that I've preached a lot of controversial things over the years, you know, predestination and, you know, whatever, whatever you think is controversy, I've probably preached on it. Um, Few things have, have probably disturbed people and angered people more than this series on the church. And I believe it's just because we, we've lost our focus. 
We've brought America into the church. We've brought this free spirit into the church and believe it rather than what the Bible says the church should be and how we should relate to her and to one another. I would dare say that none of us are going to get through probably a single message, but certainly not through all of these messages without being stung or disturbed by something. And that, beloved, will be good for us. Misunderstanding on what the church is about and who she is and her glory is likely what accounts for the fact that people so frequently and casually move from church to church. If you believe the church exists primarily to meet your needs, you probably won't stay, along, stay around very long. And churches only function as they should when the word of Christ moves believers to think and live as the body of Christ rather than as individual Christians. And that means we relate to one another and to the world not as selfish takers, but as loving givers. Because to love is to give what I have that you need because God wants me to. And you know what? I can't do that by myself. There's got to be another person involved. There's got to be other people involved. And that's what we see in the early church. The word of Christ transformed selfish takers into joyful givers who were devoted to one another because of their deep devotion to Christ. Luke, therefore, tells us in Acts chapter 2, and I'll, I'll just read this. You're familiar with it already. He writes this. As a historical note on the early church, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who had believed were, anybody know the next word? Together and had all things in common and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day after day, those who were being saved. You know what, a church that functions like that? Now, now I realize that it, the immediate context of this passage was they had physically left their homes to go to Jerusalem. The feasts were happening. They were there when the Holy Spirit came and, and you know, there was this marvelous thing. But the whole idea of a common people ministering together, ministering to those outside, ministering to those inside, sacrificing for one another. All of this extended through the rest of church history. And we see it again and again. Beloved, what we see here are people who intuitively valued the church the way God values the church. It was precious to them beyond measure. It became the epicenter of their lives as their orientation was turned away from gratifying self into edifying one another. That's what the Holy Spirit does. When he removes us or rescues us from the world, he rescues us from our own selfishness, and turns our hearts to Christ, which in turn turns our hearts to one another. This is how the New Testament always presents the church. Jesus told us, pray, remember the Lord's Prayer? My Father, it's not what he says, our Father. Not give me, but give us this day our daily bread. It wasn't lead me not into temptation, but lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Beloved, the pronouns are important. And the pronouns are important. I, I, I've got them all highlighted in the book of Ephesians because, because we're so geared toward a personal relationship with Jesus 
Please don't hear me say you should have less than a personal relationship with Jesus. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, most of us need more of a personal relationship with Jesus. And some of you don't have any relationship with Jesus, and I hope you'll come to know him today. It should be a personal relationship. But if your thinking about your relationship stops there in your quiet time, man, you don't understand the church yet. You don't understand God's plan for your life yet. You don't know your, uh, your own identity yet. I fear that it has become a foreign idea to think of ourselves not merely as individuals, but rather as members of a family made up of imperfect people who in the power of the Spirit overlook one another's faults, forgive each other, offenses in order to collectively reflect the glory of Christ in his gospel. And because such thinking is foreign to us, we don't value the church as we should. We don't value her like Christ values her. Let me just give you an insight. Uh, this is anecdotal, but we have precedent for it here in the book of Acts and other places in the scriptures. There have been people who have come to Calvary Bible Church, and not just Calvary Bible Church, but any church that, that really is exalting Christ and ministering together. If the, if the goal of their instruction really is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, then something is different about that church. And people come, and they start saying things like, wow, this is, wow, this, it's different what is it about this place? I've told you about my mom and dad coming to know Christ here. How did that happen? I'll tell you how the, how the Lord began moving in their hearts. They started saying things like, son, we've, we've never seen a real church before. We've never been loved like this before. More people have come to know Christ be, simply because they've been a part of the body of Christ for a little while. They hung out with us. They saw it. They enjoyed it. And it opened their heart to begin asking questions. What do they have that I don't have? And here comes the Holy Spirit. By grace, through faith, because of Christ alone, they're born again to a living hope. You just cannot imagine the power of a healthy local church in the lives of unbelievers. But perhaps if we stop to consider how much God loves, not just the individual, but the church as a body, we would take a significant step back towards seeing church as God sees it and loving the church as God loves it. So how much does God love the church? How much does God love the church? Well, let's take a look. Okay, all of that was introduction. Let's stand and read our text for this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Now, some of you are going to be dissatisfied with what, I, what, what I'm about to say, but I'm focused on this theme, which is the theme of Ephesians, but we've got to cram this into one sermon. And so these first few sections here, you're going to think, I just wish we had spent you know, a month on that. Well, it's on the app. You can go to the app and hear Ephesians, and we go word by word, verse by verse. It is a treasure chest full of glory. Let's just read it, and then I'll make some observations as we go. Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he blessed us in the beloved, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which 
for which he sent forth Christ. It's a plan for the fullness of times to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, and by the way, that's, that's plural, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You can be seated. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this word. I say we just read that two more times and dismiss and go home. This text is an amazing passage of scripture. And let me tell you something you may not have noticed before. It's all about the church. The whole book is all about the church. It's all about the church and how God Almighty designed it in the timeless recesses of eternity. In verses 9 and 10 of this chapter, Paul explains that the New Testament church had, since the beginning, been a sacred secret, a mystery that God chose not to reveal until the appointed time. And, and that's the thing in, in the Bible about mysteries. They are things that were not previously revealed, but now have been revealed. In chapter 3, verses 3 and 5, he says this, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. You see, there has always been a people of God. There has always been a people of God. As long as there have been people, there have been a people of God. Even in the days of apostate Israel, God had a remnant of faithful saints who loved him and who desired and pursued obedience to his word. They didn't bow to the Baals. They, they loved God's word. But even they, even these beloved ones who tried to love the Lord their God really with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, even they didn't understand God's full plan to create a new kind of people, not just Israel, but a new kind of people. This people would consist of both Jews and Gentiles together as one loving and forgiven fellowship of people. In chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This was unheard of in Paul's day. I mean, this is, this is crazy talk. This kind of talk could get you killed. It was scandalous. I mean, you can't imagine the kind of prejudice and racial conflict that existed between the Jews and everybody else. Not just the Arabs, I mean everybody else. Before Paul, no one was able to comprehend the full meaning of God's promise to Abraham that in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How many of the families of the earth? All the families of the earth. I mean, you know, whenever the apostles heard something like that, it just short-circuited, you know, and they just jumped. It was inconceivable to the Jewish mind that one day all the redeemed would come together as one body in which there would be no distinctions between Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. And, and just take a look around you. I was thinking about this last night as I was reviewing this message. Just wherever you're seated, whether you're in the chapel or you're down the hall, just look around, people around you. Here we are in the church body. We have Asian brothers and black brothers and sisters and sisters from Jordan and India. Uh, we have white brothers and, and, uh, and who knows, uh, all kinds of nationalities here. 
And that's the way it should be. And I wouldn't be surprised at all to discover that perhaps there are some Jewish people among us as well. The history of Calvary Bible Church has borne that out. We praise God for that. I was over in Israel a year ago and went to an institution that I dare not name. And we walked in and we were so impressed with the young people that were there that we, we all of us spontaneously took out our phone and started taking video. And the president of the institution ran over to us and uh, you could tell he was pretty hot. He'd never seen us before, we'd never seen him. We'd only been there for five minutes. And he was telling us, put down your phones, turn those off, I need to see you delete those. Did you take video? I need to see you delete it. And we were like, dude, calm down. <laughs> he said, you don't understand. The people, the young people who were in this institution, if anybody knew that they were mingling with Jews or Jews with them, they'd be in serious trouble and might even be killed. It's still that way today. In the early days, however, the church struggled with the idea that God had a plan that included the Gentiles. And, and that's what we saw at that institution. You look around and there were, I just want to tell you the names of the cities that you know from the Bible, and, and I won't, but, but classic ethnicities that are always at war with one another. And yet, in Christ, they are one. They're eating together. They're singing God's praises. It's amazing. The church has always struggled with this. At least the early church always struggled with it and had a plan that God had a plan that included Gentiles with Jews. Even men like Peter and Barnabas stumbled on this point. You remember in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul said, but when Cephas, that's Peter, okay? Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to the face because he stood condemned. Why? For prior to the coming of certain men from James, who, by the way, was in Jerusalem, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Why? Because by this time, James, I mean, uh, uh, Peter had already had his vision of the sheep coming down from heaven and, and the Lord saying, kill and eat, right? Thus establishing all food were clean. And then he went to the house of a Gentile. None of the apostles had ever done that before. And now by this time, Paul has, has, has gotten into the church and, I mean, in, in the sense that he is a part of the church now and he's ministering to Gentiles. And there they were in Galatia. And Paul calls out Peter to his face. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles because it was appropriate in the church. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by his hypocrisy. What was the hypocrisy? The hypocrisy was Jews and Gentiles don't do anything together. The hypocrisy was really this, that because of the resurrection, because of what God has done in the church, there is now one body. And Peter knew that. And yet he slipped back into that old way of thinking that Jews and Gentiles should never eat together. The truth was, however, that by God's incomparable grace, verse 5, the Gentiles not Jewish people like you and me. We're not Jewish people, but <laughs> I said that wrong. <laughs> Maybe you just learned something new about yourself. <laughs> Non-Jewish people like you and me. One word, I mean, one letter makes a big difference, doesn't it? Now they are fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise of Christ. And he says, this is the great mystery. This is the church. In fact, not only did God plan to bring together two racially segregated groups in the world into one body, all of the peoples of the world into one body, but he also chose every individual from those groups who would be included in the body. Oh, it is personal. It is personal. 
No, this is a truth that really takes us into the deep end of the theological pool. That God planned from all eternity that you and I in particular would be included in this amazing people called the church. In fact, as Paul pondered and savored the beauty of these truths, it's as if Paul broke out in song over the wonder of what God had done. Look at verses 3 through 14. We've already read them, but what I want you to see here, there, there's, only, there's actually only one sentence here. It's kind of broken up for us so that we don't get lost. I tend to get lost anyway when I'm reading it. It is one long sentence. In fact, it is the longest sentence in the Bible. It contains some 200 words. And as he thinks about what God has done, his mind goes from glory to glory, from wonder to wonder, from delight to delight. In one song, as it were, he includes all the cardinal doctrines of the church, including election, sanctification, redemption, and glorification. And on and on Paul goes. Paul seems intoxicated by the glory of Christ. He says such things as, to the praise of the glory of his grace, verse 6 that we should be to the praise of his glory, verse 12. To the praise of his glory, verse 14. You get the distinct impression as you read this that Paul knows something we don't know. Why does he look at the church and say, it's blinding in its glory. It's majestic. He knows how much God values the church. And it all starts in eternity past. Verses 3 through 6. We don't have time to read it again, but we'll hit the highlights here. Let's begin with a question. Where did the church begin? When and where did the church begin? It wasn't some divine afterthought following the crucifixion. It wasn't some kind of contingency plan God came up with after the resurrection. No, he chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. In other words, beloved, before there was an earth, before there was sea, before there were mountains, before there was a single plant or tree, before there was a first man or a first woman formed out of the dust of the ground, before there was any opportunity to rebel against God or even love God, God personally chose us. He called us. He called us out, hence the church is called the ecclesia, the called out ones. They are the elect. God elect us for himself. Now, I understand that some of you, you're, you're struggling with that right now. Or at least I suspect some would be. And, and I would just say to you, don't let yourself get bogged down into the issues of Sovereign grace and free will, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. For just a moment, just relax. Just drink in the reality that God loved you and chose you before the creation of the world. Before you did anything wrong, before you did a single thing right, He loved you. He elected you. He chose you. You say, Pastor, explain that to me. I can't explain that to you. I have no knowledge of eternity. I don't have the mind of God. We are not here to dissect it. God gave it to us to bless us, to reveal to us his great love. He's like a loving father who is determined to adopt a helpless child. 
and make him or her his own. So he adopted you into his family before you took your first breath. In fact, God went so far as to write your name in the book of life from before he created the world. In Psalm 139, David declared, All the days, all the days that were ordained for me were written in your book before there was yet one of them. And we can look at other places in the book of Revelation where it talks about the book of life. Furthermore, Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. To Timothy, Paul spoke to the, of the electing God who has saved us and called called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. Why? Because we hadn't done any yet. We didn't even exist yet. But according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. From all eternity. I was going to say a minute ago, when we talk about you've or God uh, electing you from before the creation of the world. It wasn't like he did it the day before. There was no day. The night before, no, 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 there wasn't a night from all eternity. He chose you. You say, why did he choose me and not that other guy? I don't know. All I know is I didn't deserve to be chosen. I had done nothing. I had done nothing. The point, friends, is that God loved us before we were born, before we took our first breath. At the end of verse 4, he says, in love, he predestined. There's another word. It's almost as if the apostle Paul doesn't want us to miss his meaning. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. How do we know that the church is God's most precious possession? We know it because he tells us he was already pouring out his love on us, his people, before one of us were made. He secured every single individual whom he would adopt to such a degree that Jesus was able to say, listen carefully, drink this in. John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all this is Jesus speaking, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. <clears throat> Chapter 10, verse 29, my sheep hear my voice. It's really interesting when you look at this passage because at this time, the sheep he's speaking of had made no profession of faith. They, they weren't in the church. They weren't a part of Christ even in an Old Testament sense. My sheep hear my voice. What's he saying? When I call, they will answer. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And how much does God love these people who are his church, the ones he has given to the Son? Okay, focus up here for just a minute. Because I, I need you to hear this. I know some of you are so overwhelmed by a sense of worthlessness that it just part of your identity and it governs what you do. And I would just say to you, that perspective on yourself 
is not God's perspective of you. How much does God love you? God the Father, here is the answer. He loves you as much as he loves He loves you as much as he loves Jesus. How much does the Father love the Son? That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves you. Jesus prayed, and here's how he says it. John 17, the high priestly prayer. Jesus is going to die. He just did establish the Lord's Supper. They're on the Mount of Olives in the dark. He looks up at the sky and he starts praying out loud so somebody can hear it, so the the apostles can all hear it, minus Judas who's already gone to betray him. And he says this, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So much God loves you. So much God loves the church. Now that would be enough to sing about, wouldn't it? For all eternity. It would be enough to sing about for all eternity, wouldn't it? I mean, you missed your cue there because it was time for you to stand up and clap and cheer and sing to the top of your lungs. You know, we don't do that because we're too fuddy-duddy. I know you're singing in your hearts. And this would be enough. But Paul's hardly begun. He's hardly begun. He moves from God's eternal love for the church to his present love of the church. His present love, verses 6 through 11. Again, I won't read it for time's sake. We've already read it. Why did God choose to adopt us before any of us had done anything right or wrong? Answer? To magnify the glory of his what? His grace. His grace. You know why salvation is all of God and not of anything that you have done or thought or figured out? Salvation is all of God, so it will be all to the glory of God. It's all of grace that it will always be to the glory of his grace. And so he says, grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now, who is the beloved? Well, that's Jesus, the beloved of God, the one whom God loves more than any other person in the world. And through him, God poured out his grace upon us, and he did it by means of, catch this word, a purchase. That's what redemption means here. He bought us and paid dearly for us. Redemption in his blood is what Paul says. You see, the adoption proceedings did not come without cost. It wasn't free for him so that it could be free for us. If God wanted, if God wanted us His own character required that he would have to purchase us because the wages of sin is death. Someone has to die. And it can't just be anybody. It has to be someone who's qualified to die not only for themselves but for everyone else on the planet. All who would believe. Our redemption would not be cheap How much would it cost God to purchase us for himself? It would cost him the life of the very one whom the Father calls the beloved. And I think what he means by the beloved is the beloved by God. In order to purchase the most valuable thing in the universe outside the Trinity, God would have to pay the highest price conceivable. The blood of his only begotten Son. If you're an unbeliever here today, you just heard the core of the gospel. This is it. It's not by you doing works. 
of righteousness that doesn't earn anything in the eyes of God. He doesn't accept any of that. The only thing he accepts as righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus. And the only thing he will accept as payment for your sin is the death of Jesus. We come through him and we live in him. By the blood of Christ, our sins are forgiven. And beloved, when it comes to the gospel of salvation, there is no such thing as cheap grace. This is priceless grace, which he lavished upon us. And the only illustration I think that, uh, maybe we can talk about the flood as a, something lavish, but that has a positive connotation and the, neg- and, the, and the flood was negative. I think of Mary Magdalene taking that bottle of perfume and it was scandalous. She broke it open and poured it on Jesus' feet and poured it on his head and wiped her feet with her hair. It was perfume that was worth a, a year's wages. And Judas was upset. Why didn't we just sell that and give money? You know how many poor people we could feed? It was valuable. Mary didn't care. It was because it was valuable that she broke it open and poured it out on Jesus. This is what God has done for us in sending Jesus to the cross. This is priceless grace lavished on us. The word lavished here means more than enough. In other words, God did not scrimp on his grace. He didn't give us just enough to get by. He wasn't trying to conserve There should be no fear that our sin might ever get to be so great that God's provision for us in Christ would somehow fall short of the need. There is no sin so big that God's grace is not greater still. He poured it all out, sparing nothing because of his great love for those who did not deserve his love. I mean, you think about it. Jesus prayed as they were nailing him to the cross. God, forgive them. They know not what they do. And by the time we come around to Acts chapter 2 and Acts 3, you know what we find? We find the answer to that prayer. Some of those people really did repent. Became followers of Christ instead of executioners of Christ. And not only did he give us the grace of redemption, he also bestowed on us wisdom and insight into his plan. Jesus said, you're no longer my slaves, you are my friends. And as my friends, slaves don't know anything their master is doing, but you're my friends, I tell you. This is what Paul is doing, he's revealing to us. He says, he has revealed the mystery of the purpose of history. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ. What in the world is happening in Washington, D.C.? You confused by it all? Don't be, I'll tell you, okay? Here's what's happening in Washington, D.C. God is moving everything to be summed up in Christ. And we don't know how. It sure looks strange to me. But all things are moving in a revealed direction. Without such divine wisdom, man is adrift upon the sea of his own foolishness and godless notions about the meaning of life. And we've got a whole generation, maybe more than one generation, of people who have no identity, and so they're just making up their own identity. They have no purpose in life, and so they just doing stuff, and, and nothing really matters. There's a, there's a certain nihilism that is taking over the land. Nothing matters because they've gotten God out of everything, and they suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and he's the only one who gives meaning. But as believers, why? Why are we united in Christ? Why do we think in ways that are very, very similar? How is it that you can meet a believer in a different country and speak a different language and be loved by them immediately? I've told you before when we went to a certain house in Kazakhstan, it was one of our first trips, 
And, and we got brought into this family's home, and we had a translator. That's how we communicated, obviously. And um, we were just relishing the fact that we had just spent hours together praying, worshiping in their home, singing. They would sing in English, and we would sing, you know, holy, holy, holy. And uh, we'd sing in English, and they would sing in Russian. And it sounded horrible. <laughs> and we all sat there and wept and, and laughed. And, and I remember him saying, brothers, where in the world could you go and say, in the name of Karl Mar Marx, would you please take me into your home and feed me and give me a place to stay? Nowhere. But where could you go and knock on the door in need and say, in the name of Jesus Christ, would you open the door and let me in? Give me a place to stay and feed me. You know where you can do that? Everywhere there are believers. Everywhere there's a church. Everywhere where Christ is named. Oh, beloved, what a gift the church is. What a gift. One French philosopher said the universe is indifferent. Who created it? Why are we on this puny mud heap spinning in infinite space. I have not the slightest idea, and I am convinced that no one has the least idea. Really? We know why. We know why. We, we know what's happening. God is on a mission, and his mission is to save lost sinners, not as an end in itself, but to the glory of Jesus Christ. He's creating and growing the church, not merely for their benefit as the end, but so that Christ would be exalted in us through the church. As members of Christ's church, we know something the philosophers could never figure out. God has revealed the most profound mysteries of the universe to his church, you don't have to be a great philosopher to know what history is about if you have the creator himself explaining it. But there's more. Not only did God love the church in eternity past, and not only does he love the church in the present, he also loves the church in eternity future. Verses 12 through 14. And I will read this, verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in him might be to the praise of his glory. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Not only has God adopted us, from before the foundation of the world and redeemed us as through the precious blood of his beloved son. He, is, he also demonstrates his love for the church by promising us an inheritance in the future. It's already kept in heaven for us, Peter says. You see, after responding to the gospel by faith, God seals us in Christ, giving us his Holy Spirit as the down payment of our inheritance. He refers to it as being sealed. A seal, in Paul's day, was a mark of identification that was placed on a letter or on a contract or other important document. It identified the person to whom that document belonged. And so does the Holy Spirit for every Christian. He's the seal. He is the mark. The fruit of the Spirit identifies you. You know what? This week, when that 18-year-old boy in that court, even against perhaps his family's wishes, offered forgiveness to the police officer who shot his dear brother, you're listening to him, and you're saying to yourself, that's a brother. <laughs> that's my brother. It's my brother. How do I know that? Because they're in any way an unbeliever is going to say the things he said. They don't have the capacity. And mean it from the heart. Oh my. And do it 
at risk of his own reputation and, and who knows what else. And praise God for that. The fruit of the Spirit marks you as a child of God, as one who is sealed by the Spirit. That's what the seal of the Spirit is to us. It is, it is God's mark upon us that indicates that we belong to him and that everything that belongs to him I think I read that already. <laughs> His voice is better than mine. <laughs> it's God's mark upon us that, it, that not only does, do we belong to him, but everything that belongs to him belongs to us. Everything. Not only that, but the Spirit is given as a kind of earnest money indicating that more of the same is coming. Has the, Spirit, has the Spirit ever given you the capacity to deny temptation? You know what? It's what heaven's going to be like. You're never going to be faced by temptation. You're never going to sin again when you're there. That's what the Holy Spirit does in your life. And the Holy Spirit does all kinds of things in your life. He, he, he doesn't only prompt you to run from temptation. I get it, you don't always do that. But even after we fail to resist temptation, it's the Spirit who brings us back to the Father and reminds us of the forgiveness He has purchased by His blood. Oh, beloved, our salvation is begun, but it is not complete. And if ever we are given to doubt that we belong to God, we simply need to look at what the Holy Spirit has done and is doing in our lives. And you know what? I, I look out, I've been here for 25 years. I look out across this body and I see people, I know so many of your testimonies. I, I know some of you grew up here and I look at your lives and I think, only God could have done that. Right? Right, Rodney? <laughs> only, God could have, only God could have done Rodney. Only God could have done Dan Kirk. What am I doing in this pulpit when I think of who I was as a teenager? It's the Spirit. God has changed me. God has changed you. If you know Him, this is His great love for us. And when He does that, when He saves you, when He pours out His Spirit upon you, when He forgives you of all of your sin, when he adopts you. You know what's happening? Listen carefully. He is drawing you out of the world. He's saving you from the world, out of the world, and into his church. If you are a Christian, you belong to Christ, but you also belong to the church. You are part of it. It is part of your identity, whether you have ever thought about it or not. And all of this will be to the praise of his glory. These things and more God has lavished on the church. She is his most precious possession. And what we need to understand is that the church that God loves is not just a, a bunch of random, unorganized, maverick, free spirits running loose all over the place with their own private relationship with God and Christ and their Bible. The church of God, the church that God loves, is a body of people whose great joy is to live together and serve together and help each other deal with sin, encouraging each other in worship and obedience. It's a church that freely ministers to one another. We pray together. We confess sin to one another. It's a church that's organized under ordained shepherds who are entrusted with feeding, leading, and protecting the flock. It's a church that, wherein every person is a, has a unique spiritual giftedness for giving to the church, to minister to the church and the other members of the body like only you can. It's a place where love is the rule that guides us, where forgiveness is the glue that holds us together, where submission to one another is a joy, and where commitment to one another is unhindered by petty differences. And most of all, the 
church is the assembly of the righteous who delight in nothing more than to worship and adore Jesus Christ together to the praise of his glory. This, beloved, is the Lord's church. And it is the most precious thing in the universe to the heart of God. Here's my question. Is she precious to you? Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for this time together, for reminding us of the glory of your grace and how the church is part of that lavished, lavish glory and grace that you have poured out on us. Oh, Father, teach us to love the church and may our love for Christ overflow in having a high view of God, a high view of Christ, a high view of the Spirit, and a high view of his church. These things we pray in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.